Welcome in, everyone, to another edition of Coach Time here on the Believe Network. I'm your host, John Lyons. Huge thank you to Taylor Kyles of CLNS Media for joining us on the latest episode of Coach Time. You can find that episode as long as all the other episodes of Coach Time on Believe.com or wherever you get your podcast. Please always listen in and subscribe as well. And we have a lot to get to in today's episode. First, foremost, the world baseball classic and it was truly a classic and look there was a lot of great action from pool play to the quarterfinals to the semifinals to of course the final game i want to hone in on two moments moment number one japan meeting mexico six to five on a walk-off double by munataka murakami what a moment that was so mexico a Rosarena robs a home run. They have a lead. You think, all right, Mexico is burst onto the national stage here. They're going to overcome Japan. They're going to win and go to the final. And instead, and by the way, they already know the U.S. is waiting in the final after their thrilling victory off the Trey Turner Grand Slam on Saturday night. But you have the feeling Mexico might you know, pull this one out, overtake Japan, who is a great baseball country, great baseball program as well. And then what do you get in the ninth inning? So, well, first, Masataka Yoshida, Boston Red Sox, by the way, you should probably so far at least be pretty happy about this guy coming to you. Masataka Yoshida has looked like a real MLB player in the World Baseball Classic. And to me, the Red Sox should be really happy about that because that's a team that is going to have a lot of holes in their rotation. They need that lineup to produce. The better Yoshida can be right away, the better off the Boston Red Sox are. So Masataka Yoshida... Good sign for the Boston Red Sox that he looked as good as he did in the World Baseball Classic. But he hits a three-run homer in the seventh inning of the game against Mexico in the semifinal. And then in the ninth, Shohei Otani doubles, leads off the inning. Then Yoshida draws a walk. And then Murakami hits a double off the wall, walk-off double. What a moment, right? They win. And they go to the final against the United States. Now, the United States defending champ. Japan also has previously won a World Baseball Classic title. And this lived up to the hype, this game. You had, of course, you have that iconic moment at the end of the game where Otani faces Mike Trout, two outs, ninth inning, 3-2 count, strikes him out to win the World Baseball Classic for Japan. And to me, Major League Baseball should be ecstatic with how well the World Baseball Classic went. Because not only did you have an iconic moment of Shohei Otani striking out Mike Trout to win the World Baseball Classic, you had high-end viewership for the entire tournament. You had packed stadiums across the world. You had the best players in the world wanting to play and talking about how great an event this was. And I think when you combine the new rules that Major League Baseball is going to have, as well as the momentum that this World Baseball Classic has created, you're going to get the most fan interest in Major League Baseball that you've probably gotten in the last 20 years for this regular season. So I think it is an enormous thing for Major League Baseball that the World Baseball Classic went as well as it did. Of course, let's get to that actual final game. So I mentioned how it ended. Mike Trout strikes out to Shohei Otani on a 3-2 slider. How about that? Otani throws the slider on three, two, he doesn't go after him with another hundred mile an hour fastball, which had gotten past him twice already. He goes with the slider, but you have Otani as by the way, the MVP of the world baseball classic. I'm going to get to why he's the best baseball player in the world in a minute, but six Oh six on base percentage, nine and two thirds innings picks innings pitch, which was the most of anyone in the world baseball classic. And by the way, at a 1.680 RA in that time, but the game starts off. Trout has a double in the first inning. And what I found 
really interesting. Probably one of the most interesting things of the entire tournament is Shota Imanaga started for the Team Japan. He was their starting pitcher, not you, Darvish. And we didn't think Otani would start anyway. He'd be a reliever. But you have Otani and you have you, Darvish, two great starting pitchers in the major leagues, and you, Darvish, is slotted to start. And at the last minute, Japan changes their mind. And their reasoning for that, which I found really interesting, is guys who were in the American lineup knew you, Darvish. And they knew how he pitched. Some of them had had success off him. So they figured that Imanaga, even though it was a righty lefty thing. And he's a, he's one of those guys with what they call, they had, you know, he's got split stats in that he's a lefty. Who's actually better against righties. And of course there are righties that are better than against lefties. So he's in that camp where he's a lefty who's actually better against righties than he is against lefties. And it was a guy that players on the U S team were not familiar with. He only pitches two innings, but only gives up one run. So trout has that double early on. And at first it looks like, Oh, maybe this decision will come back to bite him. Again, only gives up the one run. That one run was a Trey Turner home run. Then Murakami, remember him from the Mexico game, he ties it with a home run of his own. The Japanese team gets another run on a ground out. So we're sitting there at two to one for most of this game. Then Kazuma Okamoto, three to one homer. And then all of a sudden, Kyle Schwarber hits another bomb. It's three to two. And that's when you knew it was going to come down to the last moment. But I, I look at the home run ball because we've talked quite a bit. And when I say we, fans of baseball, people involved in baseball, about how over the last few years, the home run ball has become too much a part of baseball. And I think what we saw in the World Baseball Classic was because there was so much great action on the base pass in the field, great performances that these home run balls only accentuated how awesome this game in this world baseball classic was. So Okamoto hits a home run to go up three to one Kyle Schwarber. It's funny. This guy who led the NL in home runs, he's hitting, you know, in the second half of the lineup for, for team USA. That's how loaded they were. He makes it three to two. And then of course the U S in the ninth inning, they get a runner on Mookie Betts grounds into a double play. Mike Trout strikes out. So how about that by Shohei Otani? How many guys can say in back-to-back hitters, they got Mookie Betts to ground into a double play and Mike Trout to strike out. I mean, just pretty amazing moment by Shohei Otani. And I think you can make the real case now. I mean, it's been an amazing thing what he's done. People have called it Babe Ruth wise. It's really more impressive than Babe Ruth because Babe Ruth was only a full-time two-way player for two years. He was mostly a pitcher. And then in the second half of his career, mostly a hitter. There was only a couple of years where those really overlapped for him being full-time at both. Otani's already done it for three years. And then he did it at such a high level in the World Baseball Classic. So you can make a case Otani is already more impressive, at least as a two-way player, than Babe Ruth because, like I said, Babe Ruth did not do it for as long as Shohei Otani has played both ways. And Otani has done it at such a dominant level. 606 on base percentage as a hitter, nine and two-thirds innings pitched as a pitcher with a 1.68 ERA. If there's one thing for Team USA to look back on and regret, 0 for 7 with runners in scoring position. You have to think if they don't go 0 for 7, maybe they end up winning that game. They had a lot of opportunities for to break through, score some more runs. All they got was the two solo homers from Turner and Schwarber. Otherwise, you know, they they get even one hit with runners in scoring position. Maybe they end up winning that game. So the World Baseball Classic as a whole, though, to me, I thought it was phenomenal baseball from start to finish. You had great pool play, and you had record viewership in places like Taiwan, places like the Czech Republic. You had high viewership 
in Europe, in the United States, all over Asia, Latin America. And this is the thing. Baseball is America's pastime. But I think even Americans have gone gotten frustrated with it in recent years because it's been all about walks, strikeouts, and home runs. Games that should be taking two and a half hours take four hours. I mean, the average time of game 40 years ago was two and a half hours. Last year was 307. All right. Game and the game wasn't magically better because of that. In fact, there was less action. So to me, having these new rules coupled with an amazing world baseball classic is a huge thing for the sport of baseball. So I give baseball a lot of credit. I'm already looking forward to the world baseball classic in 2026 as well. But the world baseball classic was not the only major event going on this weekend. And that was March madness. And we had some pretty high end upsets. The first week of March madness, we had Purdue losing the fairly Dickinson in round one, Kansas loses to Arkansas in round two. UConn has been playing great throughout the tournament. So th those are a couple of highlights to me from the first you know, couple days, or I should say a couple rounds of the tournament. But I want to look at the Sweet 16 and give you a pick for every game of the Sweet 16 so far. So for me, Michigan State versus Kansas State, by the way, that's going to be an absolutely awesome game. You have Tyson Walker versus Marquise Noel. Michigan State was 2 of 16 from 3 versus Marquette. I wonder if Kansas State... Starts hitting some shots. Michigan State, maybe they stay cold. I, I just think Kansas State, I think these are two great teams. I think it's a great game. I think Kansas State is a little bit too much for Michigan State. And credit to Tom Izzo, though. He's been a wizard uh, defensively for years now, but especially in this tournament, the way they shut down Marquette, too, um, was just really impressive to see. So I go Kansas State there. I mentioned UConn already. Arkansas, look, hey, big upset over Kansas. They've been awesome. But in two games... Adam Sonogo, 52 points, 21 rebounds for UConn. So I, he's been a force. I like UConn here, and it's beyond just him. UConn's playing really strong basketball. Tennessee versus FAU. Look, FAU hasn't played a Power 5 team since November 14th. Tennessee is number one in three-point defense in the country. I think they're just way too much for FAU. And, and nothing against FAU. I just think Tennessee, again, they're a top – they're the number one three-point defense in the country, and FAU hasn't played a Power 5 team in several months. So I, I got Tennessee there. Gonzaga-UCLA. I think Gonzaga-UCLA, this is finally the game for UCLA where losing Jaden Clark catches up to them. And, and every year, Gonzaga is a powerhouse that falls short. I don't necessarily expect them to win the tournament this year, but I do expect them to get to the Elite Eight and beat UCLA. And UCLA is a loaded team. They're really good but they are without their best player. And maybe now in the sweet 16, I think is really where that catches up to them. Bama versus San Diego state university pace is going to be the word of this game. Look, obviously Bama's better than them. I get it, but how this game comes out stylistically, I think could determine how it's really going to go. Bama was number five in possessions per game in the NCAA this year, San Diego state university, number 263. That's a pretty big gap in possessions per game. Bama's up there pushing the ball everywhere. San Diego state slows everything down. So I think if this game goes closer to the Alabama pace, I think they win easily. If San Diego state's going to upset, I think they got to slow the game down and play to their lower possession style of game. I'm picking Bama though, Houston and Miami. I think this is another potentially great game as well. Miami, by the way, let's not forget in the seventies and eighties, they had like 14 years or so that they didn't even have a basketball program. They've built up from the ashes to have a really solid year in and year out program. 
I still go Houston here. And I know you can say Houston plays in a weaker conference overall. They've had 27 or more wins five out of the last six years, and they haven't won a championship. I get it, but they're still a really good basketball team. And I, and I like them a little bit more than Miami Creighton and Princeton. How about 15 seeded Princeton here in the sweet 16 Ivy leaguers credit to them. Creighton is a very balanced basketball team. They're in the top 25 and adjusted offensive and defensive efficiency. And they're 14 and four in their last 18 games. I think they pushed that to 15 and four with a win over Princeton. Great run for Princeton. I just think Creighton has a little bit too much and their balance. I think is just going to be too much for Princeton. Xavier versus Texas. This might be the best game of the entire sweet 16. I'm going Texas here. Credit to them. Coaching change middle of the year. They've come this far. I think they were 16 and six after the coaching change midway through the year. But I, I like Xavier. I I just think Xavier is, is good. Texas is better really. And I know that's not hard hitting analysis, but I think that's really what it comes down to. I think this is a great game. I think it's a close game, but I think they're a little bit better. I have one more thing to get to before we finish up this episode of Coach Time, and that is NFL free agency, which is a week in. So stick with us here. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsors, and they'll be right back on Coach Time. Back here on Coach Time. Thank you to our sponsors for that brief word. And we're about a week or so into NFL free agency, so I just want to go over a few signings that I really like. I talked about some of these on our last episode, but I want to dive a little bit deeper. Obviously, I like Jamel Dean re-signing with the Bucs. I I thought he was arguably the best corner on the market. Good cover guy, 26 years old. So the Bucs are still in rebuild mode, but I do like that signing. The 49ers signing Javon Hargrave. I've had a week to think about it. Look, if they can figure out the quarterback situation, and personally, I think Trey Lance will be good, but if they can get that figured out, the 49ers are going to win the Super Bowl, barring injury, because that all the only questions I have about the 49ers are quarterback and injuries. And obviously, injuries can happen to any team. Quarterback is a huge question, but it's not like they have no answers. Brock Purdy will be healthy at some point during the season if they have to go to him, but Trey Lance, I think, will be good, and they have him on the roster. And Orlando Brown Jr., going to the Cincinnati Bengals. And this is really interesting for Cincinnati because this is a team that in 2021 had a ton of issues on their offensive line. Joe Burrow, we saw, was sacked nine times in the divisional round, seven times, I think it was, in the Super Bowl against the Rams. And that really, to me, made the difference between them winning and losing the Super Bowl. Not the only thing, but the fact that if some of those drives with sacks had turned into a field goal, Maybe they win the Super Bowl. So that that's something that was a major weakness for them. They added to their offensive line last year. They added Lyle Collins. They added Ted Karras. They they re- Alex Kappa as well. And their offensive line throughout most of the year was much better. Of course, they go into the playoffs. All three of those guys, or they they're down three starters. You know, three out of their five are hurt. So I think even though Jonah Williams is probably going to want to trade now, I think Orlando Brown is better than him. So I think it's still an upgrade for them. And again, they have the quarterback. They have the receivers. They have a solid running game. They have solid coaching. They just need to make sure that offensive line is legit. And losing Jesse Bates, I think, is a big deal for them because their defense, it's still going to be good. It's not going to be as good. So they might have to have some games, especially in the postseason, where they put up more points. And not that they can't put up points, but they just they may be more susceptible to being in shootout-type games if their defense isn't quite as good. They're going to need that offensive line to be a lot better. The New England Patriots, I talked about this with Taylor Kyle signing Mike Kosicki. I like that signing a lot. I think he's a guy that he's listed at tight end, 
He's really like a big slot that can do a lot of work in the seams and a ton of work in the red zone. And I think for Mac Jones, that's huge. And I think the biggest thing for Mac Jones this offseason is that the Patriots brought in Bill O'Brien. The next biggest thing is Mike Kosicki, and then it's another target for him to look at in the middle of the field and in the red zone, of course, barring that they do anything else major uh, in the next month or so before the draft or even on draft weekend. I mentioned already the Bears and their linebacking core in my last episode, how much I like what they did. So when, when I look at the NFL free agency and, and trade period so far, we haven't seen massive trades yet. We're still waiting on Lamar Jackson. We're still waiting on Aaron Rodgers. And it looks like Aaron Rodgers is going to go to the Jets. Once that happens and once Lamar Jackson goes somewhere, because I'm I, starting to think less and less it'll be Baltimore. But once they go somewhere, I think maybe some more dominoes will fall. Maybe some receiver trades, some other player trades. It looks like two the price of DeAndre Hopkins might be going down a little bit, which I think is huge. I think a team like the Patriots, a team like the Cleveland Browns, who I know have said they're not really into the receiver market as much. I mean, if you can get DeAndre Hopkins for a third or fourth round pick and he's willing to restructure his contract, I know he's not the top two receiver in the NFL at 27 years old that he was a few years ago now that he's 30, but he's still really good. He's still an upper echelon receiver probably a top 10 or 15 receiver in the NFL. So if I'm Cleveland, if I'm New England, that's a no-brainer to me. If I'm the New York Giants, I think that's a really easy decision. I mean, you they just invested a lot of money in Daniel Jones. They have Saquon Barkley. Why wouldn't you want to go get a guy like DeAndre Hopkins? Uh, like, I think any of these teams that want to get more answers out of their quarterback but also just want to have a major upgrade or receiver, DeAndre Hopkins looks like the sweet spot. And personally, like, if I'm a team – I do like Jerry Judy a little bit better as an asset and as a trade target because he's younger, but he is going to cost more. Whereas Hopkins, I think the cost in trade value as well as in financial compensation is going to be a little bit less. So if I'm one of these teams, if I'm Cleveland, if I'm New England, if I'm the New York Giants, if I'm the Baltimore Ravens, DeAndre Hopkins is a guy that I go after. And those are all teams that either have recently invested in quarterback, whether it's the Patriots picking Mac Jones in the first round a couple of years ago or Cleveland and New York giving big money to Deshaun Watson and Daniel Jones. And Baltimore, of course, have that Lamar Jackson situation hanging out there. If they bring him back, obviously, that would be a big investment. And if not, they'd probably be picking a quarterback in the first round. So those are all teams to me that should target DeAndre Hopkins, because if you're going to make that investment at quarterback and all those teams could use an upgrade at receiver, He's going to be a guy that is not going to cost an arm and a leg draft pick wise. And he's reportedly willing to restructure his deal. I think that's a no brainer for those teams and beyond them. There's a lot of teams it would be smart for, but I think Cleveland, the giants, the Patriots and the Ravens to me make a ton of sense for Deandre Hopkins with the caveat being what the Ravens do with Lamar Jackson. Well, that's it for another edition of coach time. Thank you, as always, for listening to Coach Time on the Believe Network. Again, you can get Coach Time wherever you get your podcast, as well as on Believe.com. I'm John Lyons, your host. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with a Major League Baseball preview. Looking forward to that. Yeah.